Christ is risen. Happy Mother's Day. Um, so today is the second Sunday of the Holy 50 Days, and last week we read uh, Thomas, uh, the story of Thomas and the story of faith. And there's kind of a trajectory that goes along with um, that goes along with uh, uh, the Holy 50 Days, and we'll kind of go through them. Yesterday, or last week, sorry, it was about faith, uh, and this week it starts about the Eucharist. Christ starts and says, "I am the true bread." of life which came down from heaven and this started the Jews murmuring against him saying, you know, you're the, how can you say you're the bread of life and we know you're, you're your mother and your father and, and it's kind of strange that you're saying these things. But there's a lot more to this passage that we just read um, than just simply the Eucharist. If you look at the, the passage that we just read, I'll just summarize it with a few sentences. Um, Christ says that if we come to him then we shall never go hungry, we shall never be thirsty, he will never drive us away, he shall lose none of all that he has given us, he will raise me up at the last day, I shall have eternal life, and I will be taught by God. So that's kind of the summary of the passage we just read. And so when we hear about all of these things, we realize that following God and following Christ isn't about giving. It's about taking. It's about receiving. St. Irenaeus has this nice quote. He says, God did not tell us to follow him because he needed our help, but because he knew that loving him would make us whole. So in fact, following Christ isn't about the, the things we offer and the sacrifice. It's about receiving what God has given bountifully. And this is a pretty good list of promises, right? Never go hungry, never go thirsty, never be cast away, raised up on the last day, have eternal life. It's a great list of things. And we've heard of so many saints, and we've read about so many saints and seen so many people who've lived this life where they have taken and gotten so much from God. And this church is full of these, these stories. The Sinexar is full of the stories of the saints who have taken and received. So we know how this ends. We know that, in fact, yes, people can take so much from God and receive so much from Him if they follow Him. And we also know that this is what, God, what Christ wants. We know that this is the desire of the Father. We know He wants us to follow Him, and we know He wants to, us, he wants to give us stuff. And so it seems like everything is lined up. God wants to give us things. He wants to make us whole. He wants us to live this complete life. We've seen that saints have lived this complete life and had so much. And we know that God wants to give this to us. So then, why don't we? Why, why don't we let Christ in? Why don't we follow him? Why don't we open the door? I mean, there's some pretty nice promises on the other side. And so I want to meditate a little bit on this icon that's behind me. And you can, I want you to kind of just stare at it for a little bit. It's the icon, it's two parts. On one side, it's Christ knocking at the door. What do you notice about the door? There's no handle on it, which means it has to be opened from the inside. I mean, you, you can't even, if you're on the inside, you can't even say, go ahead, come on in. You have to walk over and you have to open it. And Christ, this is the, the famous verse from Revelation, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And this is the famous promise that Christ said, I just stand there knocking at the door and I want you to open the door and let me in. And we have to let him in. We can't even just announce for him to come in. We have to walk over and let him in. What's this called? It's our free will. It's our choice. We have to do it. And he can't make us do it. And he actually doesn't even like to force himself on anybody. So unlike an animal that has instincts that's kind of driven to do certain things without thinking, humans aren't like that. We think, we reason, we have logic, we make decisions, you have to convince us to do things. That's the way we are. We have this reasoning spirit. And God gives us this reasoning spirit and it's kind of crazy, right? Imagine, you know, you have a four-year-old kid and you ask the kid, hey, you know, should we buy this house? And the kid goes, yeah, I love this house, right? And you say, all right, we're going to buy the house. The four-year-old wants to. And your wife's like, um, you want to listen to me or talk to me about this? Or no, little Johnny wants to buy the house. We're just, And this is what God does. He just lets us pick and lets us choose whatever we want, even if it's not a, a good choice. And so we can't make anyone into a Christian. Right? We can, even as parents, right, we, can, we can force our kids to come to church, but we can't make them Christian. Right? We can force them to come to hymn class, but we can't make them pray. We can force them to serve, but we can't make them love. Right? It has to be a choice of each of us individually at some point as an adult. Now let's look at the other side, the, the, your rights. Who's on the other side? It's actually an icon of Peter. And that icon is of him right after the rooster crowed, and he's ashamed. And the question is, or is it us? So Christ is knocking at the door, and I'm on the other side, and I don't want to open. He's not opening the door. He's just standing there. Why not? There's lots of possible reasons. Maybe he doesn't want to see the light. Why wouldn't he want to see the light? In John chapter 3, it says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen, seen plainly that, they, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So he knows that maybe the light of Christ will expose his deeds. And so he doesn't want to open the door. Why else? Maybe he's scared of the consequences. Because when you let Christ in, what's Christ going to do? You don't know. Right? I mean, we all know the story of Palm Sunday. Right? They let Christ into the temple. He seemed like a nice guy. He healed people. He did nice things. And then he starts flipping tables over. And so sometimes when Christ comes in, he flips tables in our lives. Which tables does he flip? The corrupt tables. The parts of my life that I, maybe I don't want to change. Maybe there's something in my life that I really like. A sin, an uh, obsession, uh, something I'm really committed to, something I really don't want to let go of. And I know if Christ comes in, he's going to tell me to let go of that. He's going to tell me to move on. He's going to tell me to drop it. And I'm not interested in dropping. So I don't want to open the door 
because I know what he's going to say. And so maybe I don't want God. Maybe I like some sin more and I don't want to change. So why else won't he open the door? Maybe he's scared. Maybe he's afraid to be judged by God, by other people, by the clergy, by the servants. Maybe if he exposes himself and Christ comes in, there'll be judgment. And what's God like? Is God loving, compassionate, and merciful? No. He's more than that. God isn't merciful. He is mercy. He isn't loving. He is love. He isn't compassionate. He is compassion. So he's far more than that. So this person who's scared to let Christ in because of judgment is completely off. Can you imagine what the prodigal son was thinking on the way back, the walk back? He's thinking, my dad's going to get really pissed. My dad's going to be very angry. In fact, he anticipated what his dad would do, and he jumped to the punchline. Right? He said, my dad's going to say, you are not my son. So I'm going to beat him to the punchline. I'm going to beat him, and I'm going to say, I am not worthy to be called your son. He anticipated what his dad was going to say, and his dad was going to say the most horrible thing, you're not my son anymore. And what did the dad actually do? If you remember in the story, he practices one part, but when he gets to his father, he never gets to that part. Why? Because his dad throws his arm around him and says, stop talking, we're going to have a party. So his dad didn't say, you're not my son. He cut him off. And so, What's Christ going to do when, when he comes in? Is he going to judge this person? Or is he going to throw his arms around him and hug him? Obviously, he's going to love. And so maybe this person who doesn't want to open the door is just misunderstanding who God is. What else? Final reason, the big one. He's ashamed. Maybe he knows if I open the door, God will heal me, God will forgive me, God will love me. But I still won't open his shame is paralyzing him. And this is something we all experience. Shame. The shame of what we've done. The shame of our actions. The shame of the lack of love we've had for other people. If you look above, it's very hard to read, I can tell. I'll read it for you. What does it say above the shamed man? It says, you cannot escape shame except by shame. The demons Persuade us not to confess. Lay bare your wound to the physician. I'll read it again. It comes from St. John of, of uh, he wrote the book, The Ladder of Divine Scent. St. John of the Ladder, you cannot escape shame except by shame. The demons persuade us not to confess. Lay bare your wound to the physician. And so what's happening is we have to allow shame to come into our life by confession, so that we remove the shame that we have from the sin. And so what kind of shame is this? This is the shame of repentance. This is the shame of exposing myself. This is the shame of laying open and bare an open wound to the physician and saying, you know, here it is, do what you need to do. And we feel this shame a lot. St. Ephraim has this wonderful poem. He says, I who am condemned all covered with wounds and filled with despondency, how shall I lift my eyes to meet your grace, O Master? How shall I find the boldness to move my impure, polluted tongue? How shall I begin my confession? 
I am not worthy to bear your holy name. I cannot stand before you in prayer. I cannot look up and behold the light of heaven. In my heart, I cover my face with shame. And so where does the shame come from? Where's the first time in the Bible we see shame? Where's the first part we figured out that sin leads to shame? Remembers Adam, right? The story of Adam. Adam said, I heard your voice and I hid because I was naked. And so the shame was manifest as, as being naked. That's how he felt shame. And the God's plan for man was not to be shamed. Shame came as a consequence of the sin. That's not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to be shamed because shame leads to isolation. Shame is, uh, sorry, shame is Satan's weapon against us. It leads us to, 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 to kind of roll up around ourselves, to self-condemn ourselves, to hate ourselves, to loathe ourselves. And then when it kind of takes birth after a while, what does it do? It makes you hate others. It makes you condemn others. It makes me lash out at others because I'm in pain myself. And so I can't stand the sins of others. And there are people who take religion that way. They use religion as a way to shame others, to attack others, to make others feel bad. Why? Because they have pain themselves. They haven't been forgiven themselves. I want to read you a quote um, by a guy named Father Stephen Freeman. It's a beautiful article. He says, you are not your sin. You are not your sin. He says, we can also experience at a toxic level shame that is self-inflicted. Any number of sinful actions can yield that result. And it is here that I want to intervene in this article and drive home a point. We are not our sin. No human being is evil by nature. We are created fundamentally good, even very good in the language of Genesis. And though we may do many things, and many things may be done to us, none of them, none of them change who we are. Sin is not a constitutive part of our existence. It is extra-human and external to our nature. Okay. So what does all this have to do with the Holy 50 Days? Lent was the time for shame. Lent was the time for repentance. Lent was the time to expose ourselves to the light of Christ. It was a time for struggle. <clears throat> the holy 50 days that we're in now, that's the time to let Christ in, to enter into the joy of our master, to attend the wedding, to go to the banquet, to party with Christ. And we have to enjoy his presence and let him penetrate every aspect of our lives. And that's what the Holy 50 Days are about. In the church, we have seasons. And just like God created seasons in the world where he teaches us, this is a time when things die in the winter. And then in the spring, it's a time when they come back to life. He's teaching us that same principle, and the church uses those same principles even in the calendar. Lent was a time for shame. Now, it's a time to let Christ in, to enjoy. And the church actually goes out of its way to not, to focus you on that fact. One of the things we can't do during the Holy 50 Days is do a matanya. You know what a matanya is? It's a prostration. A prostration is a symbol of repentance. I take my face and I put it to the ground. 
It's a humiliation. It's me putting myself down. And the church says you're not allowed to do that during the 50 days. It's not the time for prostration. It's the time for rejoicing. Even fasting on a Friday. Friday is the day Christ was crucified. And the church says, don't. Don't, don't focus on that day. Christ is risen. Even today, what did we read? What was the cynic star about today? This, the lives of the saints. We didn't read it. Like the church skipped it. Why? We don't want to really focus on what happened on this day in 1232 AD. Christ is risen. Focus on letting Christ in. Okay. So how do I overcome the shame? I can't. Only he can cover my shame. So let's go back. The first Adam, the first man, Adam, shame came into the world, and how did it show itself? Nakedness. And what did Adam do about the nakedness? How did he try to cover the shame of sin? Who remembers? He puts he put fig leaves on, right? Good. So he put a fig leaf on to cover the shame of the nakedness, and was that effective? No. You can't cover your own sin. What did God give him instead, who remembers? Skins. Skin of an animal. How do you, how do you get the skin of an animal? You have to kill it. You have to sacrifice it. So something was sacrificed in order to cover his sins. Does this sound familiar? An animal was sacrificed in order to cover the sins of Adam. So who's the sacrifice? Christ is. And who covers my nakedness? Christ does. And who covers my sin? Christ does. The fig leaf doesn't work. So final point. How do we let him in? That's today's gospel. It's the answer at the very beginning. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The Eucharist becomes the source in which Christ enters and penetrates every aspect of our lives, physically and spiritually. There's this wonderful quote by St. Cyril of Alexandria, and he says, just by melting two candles together, you get one piece of wax. So you can imagine the scene, you have two candles, and you melt them, and then they they, they're liquid, and then they melt into each other. You get one piece of wax. So I think one who receives the flesh and blood of Jesus is fused together with him by this communion. So when we take communion, it's like I'm a candle and he's a candle. Right? But I'm one of those, those lame candles that don't have a good scent, and he's one of those bed, bath, and beyond candles that you know, smell like something nice, jasmine or something. And then I melt them together, and I get one nice smelling candle. I just made that up. But, um, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> the, one who, you are, the one who receives the flesh and blood of Jesus is fused together with him by this communion. And the soul finds that he is in Christ and Christ is in him. And so this is, this is the fuel on which we run. Right? C.S. Lewis has this other wonderful quote. I'll read you one more. He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. 
He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself, because it is not there. There is no such thing. He's the fuel on which we run. So we take Christ in, and this is how we let him in, into every aspect of our life. And we allow him to penetrate every part of our soul. And it's daunting, and it's scary, and there's shame involved, and there's embarrassment, and there's fear, and there's reluctance. And this is the human condition. That's what this icon is saying. We just, we just don't want to open the door for a variety of reasons. And so the Holy 50 Days isn't so much a time for repentance. That was Lent. The Holy 50 Days is a time for celebration. It's a time to enjoy Christ's presence. It's a time to feast with Him. And the church, in a very simple way, tries to do this, right? What does it do? It says, don't fast. No fasting. So what do we do? Of course, we could all we can eat Korean barbecue, and we just, you know, we glutton ourselves. Right? We feast in our own way. But the church is trying to give us a more important message than eat Korean barbecue, which is feast on Christ. It's the time to let him in and be happy in his presence and enjoy the presence of the Lord. You must believe in mercy to the point of believing that you are a joy for Jesus. Happiness in his life. So it is a time to be a joy for Jesus, to feast with him, and to be with him, not just symbolically, with food of every part of our life. All right, I'll end with one final quote. Let no one doubt concerning the goodness of God. Even if a person's sins were as dark as night, God's mercy is stronger than our misery. One thing alone is necessary that the sinner set ajar the door of his heart, be ever so little to let in a ray of God's merciful grace, and then God will do the rest. May we focus this holy 50 days on just setting the door open just a little, and letting one, one stream of life from God's grace come into our hearts, and glory be to God. Amen.